This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome to another episode of the Diabetes Knowledge into Practice podcast, bringing you news, views and updates in diabetes care. This series is CME accredited and this episode is accredited for up to 0.25 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. So to claim your credits, go to diabetes.knowledgeintopractice.com to complete a pre and post activity assessment. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS, who have had no influence on the content or choice of faculty. Today we're looking at the 2022 Standards of Medical Care in Diabetes, which is now published every year by the American Diabetes Association. Among the most significant updates this year is that the age to begin screening for pre-diabetes and diabetes has been recommended to be lowered from 45 to 35 years regardless of risk factors such as obesity. There's also an increased emphasis on individualization of treatment, including changes to the algorithm for the treatment of hyperglycemia in type 2 diabetes. Whereas the 2021 edition stated first-line therapy always included metformin and lifestyle modification, the updated version considers the patient's comorbidities and other circumstances and there are further recommendations around the use of technologies such as continuous glucose monitoring and treatment of obesity. To hear more about some of these updates and their rationale, today we're joined by Professor Anne Peters, who's a member of the ADA's Professional Practice Committee, which reviews and updates the standards of care. Professor Peters is also Professor of Clinical Medicine and Clinical Scholar at the Keck School of Medicine of the University of Southern California. Her disclosures are available in the episode notes. So if we start with section nine, there are a few changes to the algorithm for pharmacological therapy for type two diabetes. Could you briefly explain what these changes are and why they were made? So the crux of the ADA guidelines really is the section on the management of hyperglycemia in patients with type two diabetes. And a big debate is whether or not we need to start with metformin in people who have high-risk characteristics, which includes cardiovascular disease, high risk for cardiovascular disease, chronic kidney disease, and heart failure. And other societies like the American College of Cardiology and others don't even talk about metformin anymore. They think we should just jump in and use a GLP-1 receptor agonist or an SGLT2 inhibitor But what's interesting is you still have to look at the title of figure 9-3. And the title of that figure is the management of hyperglycemia in patients with type 2 diabetes. But you can't just manage hyperglycemia anymore. It's now a bundle. And it's almost not something that you can put on one algorithm. We in the diabetes world still believe that metformin is the best first-line therapy for lowering glucose levels. And that if a patient comes to us with new-onset diabetes, that metformin is cost-effective. We've had it around since 1957. We know a lot about it. In figure 9-3, we have a first box, which says first-line therapy depends on all sorts of things, comorbidities, patient-centered treatment factors, including cost and access and management needs, and generally includes metformin and comprehensive lifestyle modification. 
Now, comprehensive lifestyle modification is always part of the treatment. I don't care how you're approaching this because lifestyle always matters. But metformin may not always be the right choice. And particularly in patients with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, indicators of high-risk heart failure or CKD. And those which are depicted on the left of the diagram, independent of using metformin, need to be on a GLP-1 receptor agonist and or an SGLT2 inhibitor. And there's no longer a line, an arrow from that first box down to the second boxes. So basically what the ADA says is, don't even think about metformin in patients with those high-risk characteristics if you're in a setting where you can give them an SGLT2 inhibitor or a GLP-1 receptor agonist. But we also recognize that there are places around the world that when treating type 2 diabetes from a cost perspective or an access perspective, you have to start with metformin. So we're trying to put in there every circumstance. And that's always hard to do. But I certainly encourage people to not use metformin in new onset patients where you can use a GLP-1 receptor agonist or an SGLT2 inhibitor if they have high-risk characteristics. And frankly, that's what I do. And regarding starting GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors for people who are at high cardiovascular or renal risk, the algorithm now uses the word recommend instead of consider for initiating these agents. Could you elaborate on why this has changed? When writing guidelines, what we do is we take all of the available evidence and then try to make rational recommendations. And the more evidence we have, the stronger the recommendation. So when something first comes out, it's more of a consideration. We think this is probably true that a GLP-1 receptor agonist has benefit in patients with known cardiovascular disease. But we really move towards being more proscriptive to saying we recommend this once we have more than one clinical trial that supports it and more of a sense that that's truly the best path. And I know it sounds like we're being wishy-washy, but when you're making recommendations for a whole population of people, you wanna be sure to get it right. And I think that now that we recommend GLP-1 receptor agonists and or an SGLT2 inhibitor in these higher risk people, I think it's really clear that formularies should change to be that way, that how we treat people in practice should be that way. And I think it's really helped change the way we approach those patients. But it's a slow stepwise process and we do it with caution because there's real costs involved with changing recommendation. There's the notion that people will have side effects to any given therapy that we have to deal with. And it's hard to change what people do routinely. So we're trying to change practice. And that is all a big deal. So that's why we're a little slower to change than you might think. But eventually, we really can now recommend certain things, such as GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors, in a way that's really firm. We're not wishy-washy here. It is recommended. There's also now a bit more detail provided on the distinction between chronic kidney disease with and without alveolaria. Could you briefly explain that? Chronic kidney disease is one of those things which we're learning more about, not only in terms of prognosis, but in terms of treatment. And we have a lot more treatment than we used to have. But 
the world is really divided into looking at EGFR as a way to stratify people with chronic kidney disease. And then we look at albuminuria. And patients with albuminuria, regardless of their EGFR, at, are at higher risk for progression of their CKD. They're at higher risk for cardiovascular events and their risk for dying. Their overall mortality is higher. So we look at the degrees of albuminuria and that helps us divide patients into patients who may need referral to a kidney specialist. It changes the algorithm for treatment of their hypertension and it changes the algorithm for treatment of their diabetes, meaning the addition of more SGLT2 inhibitor therapy um, when possible. So albuminuria is an important clinical indicator of increased risk for all bad renal outcomes. And it also then changes, again, the intensity of their treatment and how we approach their treatment. So I think it's really important to look at patients in terms of albuminuria and clinically, Knowing what I know now, I really do think of those patients who have a lot of albuminuria as different. And those are patients where I really will refer them much earlier to see a nephrologist because those people need a lot of aggressive care to prevent progression. And is there anything else in the algorithm you think it's important that people are aware of? Well, to me, section nine is a guide. And one of the big topics of discussion always is, should we guide just based on science or should we guide based on reality? And reality is, is that there are people who are limited in terms of what they can afford and the access that they have to care. And I do believe that we can give people high quality care, even if we can't use all of the agents. And so we do have a pathway for people where cost is a major consideration. And I think that treating hyperglycemia is something we can do with less expensive agents. And for many people adding in a statin, which is lower cost and adding in an ACE inhibitor or an ARB are things we can do that do help modify risk. So I don't see people as those who can get nothing versus those who can get everything. I see all sorts of shades of gray here. And I like to encourage people to do the best we can for each individual within the clinical context where we're treating them. And so we're very careful there in the guideline to try to separate it out because we wanna really include all people and say, you know, it's okay if you're in a resource poor setting, we can still do these things for you. The standards this year have recommended screening earlier for diabetes and pre-diabetes, now starting from age 35. What led to this update? So the cut point for screening people has been lowered to the age of 35. And I think this is in part because there is some evidence that if you start screening at 35, you'll pick up cases earlier that then are amenable to treatment. Now, if you pick up people earlier, what I'm hoping is we pick up prediabetes earlier so that we can do diabetes prevention. But because rates of diabetes are increasing and we're seeing them starting younger, that it's really believed that if we start screening earlier, and there is, as I said, some data that supports this, 
we'll pick up more people that we really need to be concerned about. So 35 seems young to me because I'm used to doing it at an older age, but I think it makes reasonable sense. And I also encourage screening even younger people, even people in their teens, if they have very high risk characteristics, such as a strong family history of type two diabetes, and they themselves are overweight. So screening, I think, should be something where the threshold to screen is pretty low. We do it pretty readily in patients where they're at risk, but it is now down to 35 officially, at least based on the American Diabetes Association. There's also some new recommendations around the use of technology. Could you elaborate on these? The section on technology is my baby. It's the section that I spend the most time on and really like to try to guide. And when we started out with technology, it wasn't that many years ago. It was only a couple of years ago that we started having a section on technology. And it was because we'd only really had self-monitoring of blood glucose. But as we started having continuous glucose monitoring available, and we've had pumps for a long time, but pumps were kind of just another way to give insulin. But things have really evolved in the past couple of years. And so our recommendations have changed. And we used to be, again, a little wishy-washy. And we used to say, CGM may be used. And now we say that people who are on insulin, whether they have type one or type two diabetes should use CGM. Now, the only carve out from that is people who are just on basal insulin, but based on the mobile study, we say now that those people could also be on CGM as well because we believe there's benefit. But the way I look at it, clearly anybody who's on multiple daily insulin injections or a pump should be on CGM. And that's a new recommendation. We're much clearer. We also changed in terms of how we look at what's the best system for people with in particular type one diabetes. And we talk about AID or automated insulin delivery. And that's really the preferred way to give insulin with somebody with type 1 diabetes. But we also recognize that there are all sorts of reasons people may not want to be on such a system or not have access to such a system. But we're now saying there is data that says automated insulin delivery is really the best way to give insulin in type 1 diabetes, that people on insulin should be on continuous glucose monitoring. And personally, I'd like to see that we start using continuous glucose monitoring, perhaps intermittently in people who are on non-insulin therapies. But that's, I think, the direction that all this is going to evolve into. We also talk about caregivers in this section now. And it used to be something that I used to think that pediatricians dealt with most of the time, that parents were watching over the kids. But as we now see an aging population, particularly with type 1 diabetes, but also anybody who's relatively insulin deficient, who's on a multiple daily insulin regimen, that those people, as they get older, may need supervision from a caregiver to make sure that their insulin is given safely. And that actually makes me segue into the section on older adults, because although this isn't new, there's a really good table in that section about simplification of treatment for people with older who are older adults. And I think that for 
looking at older adults, we need to figure out the whole picture as well. And I think continuous glucose monitoring can certainly be helpful there, but it may be something that's done by caregivers. So we include caregivers in the discussion now about using technology, because I think that will be increasingly important. And finally, what's your take home message for clinicians caring for people with diabetes? I think what's most important for clinicians is to obviously understand how the paradigm has shifted when we think about people with type 2 diabetes and that we need to use SGLT2 inhibitors and or GLP-1 receptor agonists in people who have atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, who are at high risk for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, CKD, and heart failure. And it's really shifted the paradigm. And I know that we keep doing this in slow incremental bits, but the data becomes more and more powerful and more compelling. And when I give lectures, I'm still surprised at how many people out there in practice aren't doing this. So I think that we need to really focus on this notion. And we also talk in this about the pillars of care and that although I think we've always tried to have a whole person approach, that because diabetes medications now do more than one thing, we can look at this in a much greater perspective. And we obviously can't forget the other aspects of care, the treatment of hypertension, of dyslipidemia, but all of that is actually expanded as well. So I think that the bundle of care we can provide people with diabetes is greater than ever. But it seems to me like I'm talking mostly about complications, and I am. And what I'd really like to talk about is diagnosing people earlier and providing them with better therapies early to prevent progression. Inherent in that is that we now have medications that lower glucose, but also lower weight. And I think these newer agents in terms of their treatment of obesity is just as important as everything else because lifestyle, weight, exercise, all of those things still remain fundamentally important. And then finally, looking at technology, there's an ever-expanding role for technology. And I think it's becoming increasingly accepted by patients. Patients everywhere are using continuous glucose monitoring more frequently, but it still hasn't, at least not in the United States, trickled down to something that's done very often in primary care. So for all of the recommendations from the standards of care, I'd like to see them be used more broadly and effectively so that we can prevent complications and help our patients live better with diabetes. This brings us to the end of today's time. To conclude, the 2022 standards of care place greater emphasis on individualization and comorbidities, as well as on earlier screening and wider use of technologies. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to claim CME credits for listening, go to diabetes.knowledgeintopractice.com to complete an assessment. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to stay up to date and leave us a review or rating to help other people find us. See you next time.